It's time for Legally Speaking, joined as always by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, always good to be here. Always new things on the agenda about which we can speak, too. What's on the uh, list today? The top of the list uh, involves uh, some uh, progress in the uh, Craig James uh, trial. That That is to say the uh, former clerk of the uh, legislature in uh, B.C., uh, of wood sp splitter fame, oh, yes. um, and there was a, uh, a decision uh, just released with respect to one of the uh, charges on the indictment uh, that he was facing, uh, and a judge striking out one of the charges, uh, and that requires, I think, a bit of explanation to get everyone tuned into what's going on with that case. Now, ordinarily, the way a criminal charge would begin is. Crown Council uh, would draft what is referred to as an information, which is a piece of paper that would have listed on it uh, the various things that a person is alleged to have done. Uh, and each thing that they are alleged to have done, each crime they're alleged to have committed, would be listed on the information as what's called a count on the information, uh -huh. or one, two, three, four, whatever they might be. Uh, and the idea with an information is you should be able to read it to determine you know, what are you alleging the person did, right? Yes. It sort of frames what's going to go on from that point on. And ordinarily, in a criminal prosecution, one of the first things that would happen is that the accused person who's charged with uh, serious offenses, which are referred to as indictable offenses, which is what Mr. James is charged with, would be given what's called an election or a choice as to what kind of trial they would want to have. Do they want to have a trial in provincial court or in a Supreme Court or in Supreme Court with a judge and jury? And so ordinarily, the accused person would make that choice, and then that would determine how the case was going to proceed. With respect to Mr. James, one of the unusual things that's occurred uh, is that the uh, Crown has decided to proceed by means of what's called direct indictment. And what that means uh, is that the, either the Attorney General or the Deputy Attorney General has to personally approve it. And when that occurs, it bypasses uh, what could some of the earlier stages in a criminal prosecution, like, for example, a preliminary inquiry, which would be held if the person asked for one to determine if there was enough evidence to proceed to trial. And so it, the matter winds up going directly to trial in Supreme Court with a jury. And so that's what's happened, first of all, in Mr. James's case. There's been this direct indictment. And on the direct indictment, there he was charged with a total of six different counts. Uh, and so if you looked at the piece of paper, you be, should be able to read it and figure out, okay, you know, what is he alleged to have done? Um, and in his case, there was a, there's been a controversy with respect to the first count on the indictment. Uh, and this is why it's controversial. The other counts on the indictment, other than the first one, listed things that were reasonably specific. Like if you looked at count number two on the indictment, uh, it alleged that he improperly kept a long service award of some $257,000. Hmm. Or count three, you look at it and see, well, he's alleged to have obtained a, a benefit by the purchase and use of a trailer and wood splitter paid for with public funds. Yes. Uh, or account five, alleged to have submitted and received reimbursement for personal travel expenses. Okay, those are all pretty clear. 
Um, I still think they should put that wood splitter on tour around the province and let people <laughs> sign up to do a little bit of wood splitting. Oh, like I, 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 I had actually forgotten about the wood splitter. Like, I guess it had, I, I hadn't had cause to turn my mind to that whole episode for quite some time. So I'm just laughing to myself because, again, this is all real in this bonkers Twilight Zone situation that we find ourselves in. And I love the wood splitter explanation. The wood splitter explanation at the time was that in the event of something like an earthquake where there was no power or peace by the legislature, <laughs> it was justified on the basis that you might go and chop down some trees on the legislative grounds, maybe that big one in the middle, uh, and then feed it through the wood splitter. And I guess he was going to heat the place with the wood. Anyway, we'll find out what happens with that. I still think the public should get a shot at that thing, right? You know, I've some wood once in a while. They could use some good splitting. Look like yeah. a nice device. Yep. But so, but there, the first count on the, this indictment uh, was different from the other counts. The, the first count on the indictment alleged that Craig James, between September 10th, 2011, and November 21st, 2018, inclusive, at or near Victoria, and then being the clerk of the House, did commit a breach of trust in connection with his duties, the duties of his office by using his, pers- his position to advance his own personal interests over public good, contrary to Section 122 of the Criminal Code. And so the complaint that the defense counsel had with this count was, well, what are you talking about there? You're alleging he's done something mm-hmm. uh, that to advance his own interests sometime in this period between September of 2011 and November of 2018. What might that be? Mm. Um, what am I defending against here? Yeah, because you need to know uh, how to and- meet the case. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Correct. And that raises a number of issues. One is exactly that. What What is this, right? Uh, and in response to the, what are you talking about here? The Crown said, well, we're only alleging conduct that is covered by the other counts. And mm. so that raised a number of other objections. Well, why do you have this if it's covered by the other counts specifically? And then it raised a number of potential issues for the trial. And they include things like, okay, so... If you've listed these various specific things, like the wood splitter or the $250,000 long service award, etc., and any and all of those things could be covered by this one count that's just over this long period of time. Now, let's think about, let's think it through. Let's say it's a jury trial. Let's imagine two jury members are satisfied that the wood splitter was a problem. Several are satisfied that the $250,000 was a problem. Uh, and the rest don't think either of those were a problem, but don't like to you know, find that the travel expenses were improper. Hmm. Now, can that jury convict on that count? They don't agree about what happened here, but they all think something happened, yeah. right? Hmm. And so that creates a potential issue for the jurors. There's other complexities uh, that would arise from this, including the issue of, well, doesn't this just add needless complexity if this one just duplicates the other specific ones? And then there's another issue, which is that the criminal code specifies that a count on the on information should shall generally apply to a single transaction. Uh, and so the concept there would be like if you're alleging somebody committed uh, a, an assault, uh, you know, had a bar fight and punched somebody in the nose. Mm-hmm. Okay, that could be the subject of a count. Okay, if you're alleging that the person had some other fight five months later with somebody else, well, generally that should be a second count on the information. It shouldn't be you did commit some kind of an assault with somebody or other in some place 
because it's okay. Well, what is that? How how is that to be defended against? Maybe the first one was self defense, and the second one, your position was I wasn't there. Well, now what? The idea is that each one of these things, the counts, should clearly refer to a specific thing. And while you can have a circumstance where there are a series of transactions that would all amount to a single transaction, like let's say, for example, um, somebody's doing the same thing uh, multiple times. Let's say somebody's stealing coins out of a parking meter. Yes. And they're doing basically the same thing uh, every day uh, for two weeks. You could charge the person with theft of money from parking meters between this date and that date on the theory that that's all really one activity. You're just every day taking money out of parking meters. Hmm. It's all the same thing. That could be a single transaction. It could be framed in that way rather than listing each parking meter separately. So there is some flexibility there. Hmm. But in this case, the judge took into account all of those various considerations. Complexity for the jury. What if they disagree about things? All the instructions they need about that. The fact that the first count according to what the Crown's explanation was, was just a complete duplication of the other specific ones. So it really added nothing. It just sort of duplicated them in a rolled-up hole. Uh, and that issue of the single transaction rule, you know, isn't the, for example, is the travel expenses really the same transaction as the wood splitter? Hmm. Or is the 250 something thousand dollar payment, is that really the same thing as the uh, you know, paying for your personal trip. Hmm. It doesn't really seem like a single transaction. They seem like distinct things. And so all of those factors uh, led to the defense counsel in the case being successful uh, in having the uh, judge who's hearing the case, and I should say it's Associate Chief Justice Holmes, who's uh, very experienced with criminal law, mm -hmm. um, agreeing that the first count on the information, this kind of wide-ranging one over the entire period of time, should be quashed or removed. And so that's what was just decided in the case. The first one is now gone. And so the ultimately the jury will be left with the specific things to go and decide. Are you satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that, for example, the wood splitter or yes. the retirement amount or the travel expenses? Uh, and so um, there is judicial discretion to deal with those kind of issues, even though generally it would be Crown Council that would decide how you're charging somebody and what you're charging them with. Uh, and even though there's this special provision in the criminal code that allows for the direct indictment, which is to say no preliminary inquiry, no choice as to what kind of trial you're going to have, if the Attorney General or Deputy Attorney General approve of that. And so that's what's happening in this case. We've got a direct indictment, uh, and now we've had the first count struck out. And so we will now move forward with a trial dealing with the remaining uh, specific counts. So not a conclusion of the whole case, but I think an interesting example of how that works, how a criminal case starts, and what's a bit unusual uh, about this one. Uh, and hopefully this decision will get things uh, focused uh, a bit more uh, to make the uh, trial a bit easier and to make it less complicated for the jury uh, to sort out whether uh, they're satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt. He did the specific things without having to worry about this one wide-ranging sort of duplicate uh, charge on the indictment that may have just added needless complexity without really uh, moving the ball forward too far. Legally speaking on CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, will be back right after this.
All right, back on the air, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor, legally speaking on CFAX 1070. I tell all listeners to the program, make sure you listen during this segment. I learn new things about the criminal justice system and the way that it functions every single week. And Michael, we're always appreciative of the benefit of your insight. What's next on the list? Well, next on the list is one that I think could affect a lot of people. Uh, It is a decision out of the B.C. Court of Appeal, uh, once again, uh, interpreting uh, the um, electronic device uh, prohibitions in the Motor Vehicle Act, right? Oh, good. uh, That again. While driving. Okay. We're still working at it. All right. Uh, And so the facts of this case involved a fellow who was uh, driving, and he had a cell phone, which was... uh, either on his leg or wedged between his leg and the seat of his car facing up. Uh, and the police were conducting a uh, enforcement action at an intersection, and they spotted uh, this particular activity. Uh, and the way this section is drafted is that it prohibits the, one of the things it prohibits is the use of an electronic device, and then it defines various ways in which you can be using an electronic device. The first of which is, holding the device in a position in which it may be used. Yes. There are other ways, like operating one or more of the device's functions or communicating orally using the device with another person or various other things. But the first one is holding it in a position in which it may be used. Now, things didn't go exactly swimmingly at the first at the trial for this fellow. He had a trial in traffic court. Uh, and the Crown and everyone seems to agree that the judicial justice who heard the case made some clear mistakes, including making comments that uh, a device can be used simply by being in the vehicle anywhere uh, because that could be distracting. Hmm. Like if the device was charging in the car, that's just not right. No. Uh, and so he was convicted, but then it produced an appeal, first of all, to the B.C. Supreme Court, and now all the way to the Court of Appeal. Uh, I think that was sort of prompted by some that mistake by the judicial justice who heard the case initially. But it led to a judicial uh, consideration of what does it mean to hold a device? Uh, and this fellow's argument was, look, uh, the premise of this thing was that I was holding it in a position in which it may be used. I wasn't holding it. It wasn't in my hand. It was wedged between my leg and the seat. Uh, and so the Court of Appeal was dealing with the issue of what is meant by this legislation when it uses the language holding the device in a position in which it may be used. And that caused the Court of Appeal to go and look at things, including the Oxford English Dictionary definition of holding. Um, and that definition included the concepts of to support something or to keep something in a particular place or position. Uh, And so the outcome here is that the Court of Appeal has now found that in the context of this legislation, holding doesn't necessarily require you to hold the device in your hand. You could be holding the device on your leg, for example, uh, and that is sufficient. Hmm. And so the fellow had the thing, had the phone, I think even on his version of it, sort of on his leg or wedged between the leg and the seat Uh facing up. And so that was sufficient to be both holding the device and having it in a position in which it may be used. Uh, And so that is prohibited. And so even though the initial basis for the conviction was not correct, the Court of Appeal found that uh, his conviction would have been inevitable even if a proper interpretation of all of this was applied uh, because the man agreed uh, that he had this thing wedged uh, by his leg 
that amounts to holding it, uh, and it is in a position in which it may be used. So the takeaway is don't do that. There are some specific exceptions where you are permitted to, as long as you're not a new driver, for example, you could have a device which is affixed to the vehicle in a safe fashion, and you have to look at the exact wording of that, sort of mounted in a way uh, that you'd be able to, um, for example, uh, make a hands-free telephone call with it, uh, or use a single touch to answer a call. But you can't do that by simply having the device flopping around loose, that's not allowed, Mm -hmm. or wedged by your leg, that amounts to holding. And I think the concern there is that, um, you know, let's say you swerve and the device goes flying, right? You might be tempted to grab the thing or take some other action with it that could be unsafe. And so they want to make sure that the thing is secure uh, and uh, don't have it sitting on your leg uh, or anywhere else like that, uh, because it's now clear from the Court of Appeal uh, that uh, you could be convicted. And these things have bigger consequences than some people realize because on a second conviction, you will be prohibited from driving. Yes. Uh, and so for many people, that is a major implication because it means they can't work or get to work. Uh, and so uh, that's a challenge. I do think this legislation requires some updating uh, and some clarification because um It is so broad uh, that there can be activity which most people wouldn't conclude would be unsafe um, or at least more unsafe than various other things people might do in a car, holding a drink or (laughs) having their wallet in their hand or something. Like, for example, they've been there are convictions now based on devices that were dead and the person was just moving them or things of that sort, which, you know, when you look at that, you've got to say to yourself, is that really what's intended here, right? Do we, do we need to be convicting people or prohibiting them from driving for doing something like, you know, putting a dead device over or one fellow is convicted for having a uh, earbud in his ear with a cord running to the device that he was found to have been holding the device yeah. in his ear. Yeah. Uh, and so it's pretty broad. Most people would, I think, agree you shouldn't be emailing away as you drive down the road. No. But you know, whether we need to capture people who have an earbud in their ear or who are, you know, putting a dead device in the glove box or something, I think this perhaps is time for some legislative updating because the courts aren't analyzing whether this is a good idea or not. They're just left with, here's the language. It says, you know, using means holding. And so now I have to decide whether, you know, having it on your leg amounts to holding. That's not an analysis of whether that's a good idea or whether we really should be prohibiting that. That's a legislative decision. The courts are just doing their best to interpret the wording they have. And so while I appreciate we all want to have safe streets, uh, we also want to avoid convicting people who are morally blameless uh, for engaged in acti- engaging in activity like having, I think, things like an earbud in their ear or you know, putting a device uh, uh, away that's got a dead battery or something. I'm not sure that that's really what we need to be capturing unless we also want to be capturing people who are, you know, taking a drink of water out of a bottle or all kinds of other things you might be doing in a car that could be distracting. So room for legislative improvement, but in the short term for everyone, don't have the device sitting on your lap, on your leg, or or somewhere that could flop around in the car, uh, or else you may find yourself uh, in some pretty serious difficulty. Three minutes remain in this week's segment, and I see one more story on the list. Yeah, 
The last one involves a uh, settlement of a claim against Cathay Pacific uh, Airways, uh, who had a data breach in 2018, where hackers got uh, several million uh, pieces of information, passport numbers, names, and so on. That produced a class action in Canada, covering some 230,000 class members who had their private information stolen by the hackers. It's resulted now in a class action settlement of $1.55 million. Uh, And the decision that came out uh, is that when there's a class action settlement, the lawyers who are acting for the representative plaintiff in the class action need to get approval from the court to determine that a proposed settlement is an appropriate one uh, to make sure that it's in the interests of the class members. And the decision that came out is an example of one of those decisions where the court is tasked with reviewing the the suggested negotiated settlement to determine whether it is in the interest of the class members. The court doesn't have authority to tinker with it because, of course, this is an agreement, right? You can't sort of force somebody to agree to something they're not agreeing to. But the court has the authority to give the thumbs up or thumbs down to a suggested resolution Uh, to determine whether it is in the interest of the class members. Uh, And before that happens, what occurs is they would send out notices and publish notices to people who would be members of the class so that if people want to object or opt out, uh, they're able to do that. Like if they want to run their own case for having their data breached. Uh, And various people write in, when you have 250,000 some odd people, uh, you know, not surprising, a few people are going to have their own ideas about what should be happening. Uh, And I must say, I I enjoyed reading through the various, I think there were six people that objected to it by email, none of whom showed up, but they sent an email. So the court was having to, you know, analyze each of the various objections of these six people. Uh, One of them I liked, he thought it was unfair to the defendant, the airline, (laughs) uh, that they had to pay this money. But nonetheless, he wanted $20,000 for what he described as a rough estimate by himself of uh, harm caused by the intentional infliction of mental distress by Cathay Pacific's wrongdoing. <laughs> that, that, didn't, uh, that, that didn't work out for him. That's a pretty high uh, standard to meet to prove that tort, but good luck to him. Indeed. <laughs> so the judge analyzed the various objections, analyzed things like, you know, the nature of the claim, took into account, and this was interesting, the fact that COVID-19 has substantially changed the litigation landscape particularly with respect to the travel industry. Yeah. That's code for these airlines, I think, may be on the verge of bankruptcy in some cases. Yes. Uh, and uh, considered the uh, all of the work done here by counsel uh, and ultimately approved the settlement. Uh, and also, interestingly, approved uh, an honorarium, which has become common for the representative plaintiff, the person who's the nominal representative plaintiff of the class. That person here is going to get... $1,500 for their work, you know, showing up and answering questions and so on in the case. So if you uh, had your data stolen by Cathay Pacific, uh, you may wind up with a few dollars, depending on how many people uh, register for the uh, register for the settlement. Legally speaking on CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Pleasure as always. Until next week. Have a great week. Stay safe. All right. You too. Bye now.